Hello, listener. Earlier this year, I received a highly intriguing email from another listener named Sam. A chemistry PhD student at Harvard, he wrote that he and some of the other folks in his lab enjoy the podcast. It's a high compliment whenever someone takes the time to write in, so if that were the whole message, I already would have been quite pleased. But there was more. I was wondering, he said, if you would be interested in recording an episode of your podcast at our department. After checking from every conceivable angle that this wasn't some elaborate prank, we made arrangements. I already had big plans for the next episode. Element 92 is one of the table's most historically prominent entries. I thought it would be a perfect fit for the show's first live outing. Unfortunately, that meant an already long-delayed episode would be postponed even further. But that also meant I had the time to prepare the program's most ambitious episode yet. I hope you find that it was worth the wait. You're listening to the Episodic Table of Elements, and I'm thrilled to be here. Each episode on this podcast, we take a look at the fascinating true stories behind one element on the periodic table. And today we're chasing down top secret stories about uranium. In the last episode, uh, I mentioned that every element is interesting enough to warrant precisely one episode. I regret this phrasing, because one could easily write several hours of episodes about uranium. How could we possibly fit all the stories there are to tell, from Trinity to Chernobyl, from Stuxnet to Zaporizhia? I wager one could easily write 92 separate episodes about Element 92. Nonetheless, my entirely arbitrary policy still stands. If Carbon only gets one episode, then everybody only gets one episode. So I'd like to avoid retelling the same stories that have been told quite capably many, many times before. Instead, I'd like to share two tales from Uranium's history that some listeners might not have heard before. For starters, the worst radioactive accident in U.S. history. Now, that sounds like the kind of thing everybody should know about, right? Often the name of such a disaster becomes the name of the place where it happened. For instance, Three Mile Island, Fukushima, Barkon 4. Sadly, Church Rock does not have the same recognition. In the Democratic Republic of the Congo, stay with me, I'll get back to the U.S., Shinka Lobwe was home to some of the purest uranium deposits in the world. That's great, but it presented an exceptionally potent radiation hazard for those who worked the mine, and it gained some notoriety. The name Shinkalobwe comes from a local, particularly thorny fruit that has a nasty tendency to burn people long after it's been cooked. It's also slang for a man who's easygoing on the surface but becomes angry when provoked. Europeans were quick to exploit this resource following its discovery in 1915. The uranium, not the fruit. Belgium mostly, since they still claimed the territory as a colony, but Nazi Germany seized much of the Belgian uranium supply in 1940. 
Stick a pin in that because we're going to come back to it. Nearly all of the uranium used in the Manhattan Project came from Shinkalogwe, but when the U.S. government decided it needed many thousands of atomic bombs, a domestic source of uranium was practically required. And soon enough, they found one. Although, domestic can be a complicated idea. The site we're focusing on was near the Four Corners, the place where the borders of Utah, Colorado, Arizona, and New Mexico all meet at a single point. It was also unambiguously within the borders of the Navajo Nation. Actually, hundreds of suitable sites were found within the nation's borders and also on Pueblo and Hopi land. But we're looking at a place called Kinshitso Sinil, also known as Church Rock. The Navajo, or Diné in the Navajo language, had already spent decades keeping avaricious surveyors and would-be oil barons off their land. They used bureaucracy when possible, and firearms when necessary. Things were different by the late 40s, though. The new covetous party wasn't some snaggletooth prospector or conniving tycoon. The Navajo had to deal with Uncle Sam himself, a uniquely persuasive fellow. The government made promises of jobs and economic development. Workers might even receive royalties from the mining operations. Whenever that line was unconvincing, they also threatened to withhold funding for essential social services. So despite considerable local controversy, uranium mines started to riddle the landscape. And at least one of the government's promises to the Navajo came true. Many thousands of jobs were created, many of them held by Navajo workers. We like to talk a lot about creating jobs in the U.S., but rarely do we talk about what kinds of jobs those are. Whether those jobs are satisfying, whether they pay a livable wage, whether they provide remotely safe working conditions. If you're familiar with the history of the mining industry, either from this podcast or anywhere else, you will not be surprised to learn that these jobs failed on those fronts. The pay varied, but it ranged from minimum wage to, well, below minimum wage. But there wasn't a lot of choice among jobs. For many within the Navajo Nation, uranium miner was the only job available. This was also most Navajos' first experience with wage labor, which only became necessary after the government spent decades methodically exterminating their livestock and criminalizing centuries-old cultural practices. There was a clear divide among the workforce. Navajo workers made up most of the mining crews, while their bosses were usually white, better paid, and far away from the most hazardous working conditions. And make no mistake, it was extremely hazardous, and this was well known at the time. As far back as the 16th century, episodic table alums Agricola and Paracelsus both noted that some peculiar diseases were prevalent among pitchblend miners. By the 1870s, doctors had determined that uranium itself was causing the health problems. And by the 1940s, scientists were starting to understand that that was cancer and the mechanisms by which that happened. But the Navajos didn't know any of that. Literacy was rare at the time, and knowledge of radiation completely absent. The Navajo language had no word for radiation at the time, and few of the miners spoke English. 
These are problems, but surmountable ones. Find an effective way to inform the miners of the dangerous conditions and ensure adequate protections are in place to minimize harm. The miners were never informed of the dangerous conditions, and there were almost no protections. For instance, a steady flow of fresh air is even more important in a uranium mine than usual, since radon gas will otherwise accumulate in the tunnels. Yet ventilation here was essentially non-existent, mostly relying on the hope of a stiff breeze rolling through. Officials and doctors were well aware that these practices would have some very predictable consequences. The U.S. Public Health Service capitalized on the opportunity to turn the whole situation into a human testing experiment. The PHS did not inform its subjects about the health risks they were exposed to, the health risks that were so worth studying. On the contrary, great effort was taken to ensure that such knowledge did not become widespread. When one study concluded that uranium is indeed a radiation hazard, the insurance branch of the Atomic Energy Commission requested that the results be classified. As one official wrote, We can see the possibility of a shattering effect on the morale of the employees if they become aware that there was substantial reason to question the standards of safety under which they are working. In the hands of labor unions, the results of this study would add substance to the demands for extra hazardous pay. Knowledge of the results of this study might increase the number of claims of occupational injury due to radiation and place a powerful weapon in the hands of a plaintiff's attorney. In the subsequent decades, hundreds of Navajo miners would die of lung cancer, almost certainly caused by ongoing occupational exposure to radiation, and it's difficult to say how else or how many miners' long-term health may have been affected, especially by other cancers and kidney disease. But it wasn't only the miners who were exposed to this increased risk. Radioactive material was treated carelessly, almost maliciously. Mountains of waste were piled up right next to families' homes. New buildings were unwittingly built out of irradiated earth. Mining companies pumped highly contaminated water right into residential areas where it collected in pools that looked, smelled, and tasted perfectly clean. In the Navajo Nation, babies are born even today with higher concentrations of uranium in their bodies than 95% of the U.S. population. Not the baby population, the entire population. Surely all of that deserves to be known for its own sake, but lamentably, today it is the background for our first story. By 1979, over 700 mines had been built on Navajo land. The largest of these was Church Rock, a rural chapter of the Navajo Nation, five miles from Gallup, New Mexico. Partly to address some of the most outrageous health concerns just mentioned, the plant had some additional safety measures in place. In particular, United Nuclear Corporation built an artificial pond to contain the uranium mill's tailings, its waste. You know, so it didn't get dumped directly onto people's homes. But on July 16th, 1979, this safety feature was the cause of an unparalleled disaster. That morning, residents woke to clear blue skies and the sound of water rushing through the bed of the Rio Puerco. The dam that held back the tailings pond collapsed, allowing 356 million 
leaders of radioactive waste to spill far and wide. A figure like that is practically incomprehensible, but by way of comparison, that's the same amount of water that cascades over Niagara's Horseshoe Falls over 2 minutes and 17 seconds. That deluge carried some of the most hazardous elements that we've come to know. Radioactive ones like thorium, radium, polonium, and leftover uranium, but also plenty of regular toxic metals like cadmium, selenium, and lead. It was also highly acidic, with a pH around 1.2, somewhere between stomach acid and battery acid. Obviously, there were ill effects. The liquid burned the feet of both a little boy and an elderly woman who waded in. Livestock who drank from the puerco dropped dead. Sewage lines in downtown Gallup overflowed with the frothy chemical slurry. Usually, when water rushes through the desert, life blooms in its wake. But actually, the day the dam broke was not terrible in terms of casualties. Nobody died from the flood. The real damage came over the following days and decades. United Nuclear started repairing the dam as soon as they learned of the disaster, but nobody told the people living there anything for several days. When the Indian Health Service finally did issue a warning, they exclusively used English-language signage and radio transmissions at first. There haven't been good studies of the land and people affected by the disaster, but what data does exist is about as bad as you would expect. Cancer rates in the area doubled from the 1970s to the 1990s. Kidney failure, heart disease, and birth defects have also increased. Uranium has seeped into every inch of the landscape and every resident's body. Much of the Navajo Nation did not, and still does not, have running water, so they continued to use water from the Puerco. Those who do have tap water in this community and as far away as Arizona were not spared these ill effects. One scientist said, for decades the people were unknowingly drinking poison water. And this disaster, again the worst of its kind, was entirely preventable. Two years before the accident, independent inspectors noted small cracks in the dam wall. They urged UNC to conduct repairs and frequent inspections of the dam. The following year, worse cracks were found, but neither the head of the company nor the appropriate regulatory agencies were informed. Even before these discoveries, United Nuclear was well aware of the danger. According to the Army Corps of Engineers, when the facility was constructed, quote, the company's own consultant predicted that the soil under this dam was susceptible to extreme settling, which was likely to cause its cracking and subsequent failure. UNC took no action in response to any of these warning signs. Instead, they filled the tailings pond with more waste than it was designed to hold. The response to the dam collapse was weak from not only the government, but also the media. A couple small newspapers included a short story about the incident on page 8 or page 14. The New York Times included an AP article in its November 18th edition on page 55. 
A piece in the Washington Post downplayed the possible health effects and reassured its readers that the area affected by the spill was, quote, sparsely populated. This is especially interesting because only 14 weeks earlier, Pennsylvania's Three Mile Island nuclear plant suffered a partial meltdown. Much like at Church Rock, no one was injured or died in the immediate aftermath. Unlike Church Rock, long-term damage to the environment and population was minimal, close to none. But a media frenzy followed that incident, and 200,000 people protested nuclear power and weapons in New York City shortly afterward. A highly visible remediation effort at Three Mile Island lasted more than a decade and cost over a billion dollars. Nearly $100 million have been doled out as publicly documented compensation to nearby citizens. Church Rock saw no such care. Three months after the incident, United Nuclear had only cleaned 1% of the solid waste. When the residents asked Governor Bruce King to declare the site a disaster area, he refused, meaning the availability of federal aid would be extremely limited. After 1990, some miners could apply for payments through the Radiation Exposure Compensation Act, a small amount of money available to anyone who contracted cancer from job site radiation during the Cold War, but the victims of the Church Rock spill were never recognized. All this even though the Church Rock spill exposed people to over three times as much radiation as Three Mile Island, and Pennsylvania certainly experienced none of the existential problems that UNC exacerbated in Navajo land. You would think that anti-nuclear activists would have immediately latched on to a second, much worse nuclear accident so soon after the last one, and yet that did not happen. It's impossible to explain why definitively, but it sure looks like racial bias might play a role. The people most affected by the Church Rock spill are Navajos, and the areas surrounding Three Mile Island were majority white. Reporters are humans just like anyone else, and journalistic negligence can be caused by unexamined prejudice just as well as it helps feed further prejudice. Plus, the United States' history with indigenous people is not exactly one of mutual benefit and respect. We can, however, try to redress our past failures in the present day. Part of that is making sure people actually know the story of America's worst known radiation accident, but it requires action in addition to explanation. The incident happened one awful day 40 years ago. But it's also happened every day since then, up to and including today. We have a responsibility to end the disaster. It's an interesting coincidence that the Church Rock spill happened 34 years to the day after the Trinity test, the ultimate do-or-die moment for the Manhattan Project and kind of for everyone else, too. While writing this episode, I looked into the life of George Kisiakowski, since he worked on the Manhattan Project, and he taught chemistry at this institution for over four decades. And he is quite the interesting figure. Uh, born in Kiev, he fought for the losing side of the Russian Revolution, 
studied in Berlin, then became an assistant professor at Harvard. His contribution to the atomic bomb was rather crucial. He led the design of its explosive lenses, which focus the detonation's energy and kick off the fission reaction quickly and efficiently. He later served for a year and a half as President Eisenhower's special assistant for science and technology. During this time, he wrote daily in his diary, recording in great detail such happenings as Khrushchev's visit to Camp David and the U-2 spy plane debacle, with equal attention given to such quotidian proceedings as budget decisions and a joke someone told about a young woman asking her doctor for birth control. He's actually going to appear in the upcoming film Oppenheimer, uh, played by Norwegian actor Trond Fausa. Richard Feynman and Ernest Lawrence are also going to be in that film, uh, portrayed by Jack Quaid and Josh Hartnett, respectively. Finally, a movie that isn't afraid to portray scientists as the achingly attractive people they invariably are. Sadly, for as interesting as Kistiakowski is, we shan't be learning a single thing about him today. In Looking for Tales Untold, I tried to avoid directly discussing the United States' inaugural atomic undertaking. So with all due respect to the good professor, I'd like to talk about a different country's attempt to crack the atom. It is a very good thing that Adolf Hitler never acquired a nuclear arsenal. I trust this is a statement that requires no Fuhrer explanation. During World War II, high-ranking Allied scientists and military officials were extremely concerned that Nazis might have a sophisticated atomic program, and with good reason. After all, German engineering, metallurgy, and weaponry were all legendary. Back in episode 42, we learned about the Paris gun, a massive artillery weapon from World War I that fired upon the French capital from the next country over. Hitler publicly preyed upon this reputation by frequently making vague allusions to superweapons that the Wehrmacht would soon possess. And indeed, uh, Germany became the first belligerent to deploy jet-powered aircraft, and later fired the world's first cruise missiles and ballistic missiles, primarily against civilian targets. But there was an even more proximal precedent to atomic bombs. In 1938, German scientists became the first anywhere to witness nuclear fission. And then they stopped sharing any further discoveries. The Allies had no idea how much progress German scientists might have made in the following years, but the available evidence was worrisome. Germany had been openly stockpiling uranium for years and operated a heavy water plant in occupied Norway. Additionally, America acquired Axis communications connected to the conflict, connoting a conceivable capacity for upcoming Teutonic atomic apocalypse. All these factors, along with one very persuasive letter from Albert Einstein and ghostwritten by Leo Szilard, were reasons why the United States sought to develop an atomic bomb as quickly as possible. But with the stakes being cataclysmic, that wasn't enough. The Allies also needed to learn everything they could about the German nuclear program and try to end it. Such an effort fell partly under the purview of the Manhattan Project, since almost anyone who knew anything about nuclear fission was part of the Manhattan Project. 
That means it became the responsibility of our old friend, director of the Manhattan Project, Brigadier General Leslie Groves. Groves will also be in the Oppenheimer movie, played by none other than Matt Damon. This remains an ad-free program. Uh, it's just that science history only gets cinematic attention once every couple of years, and this time the entire ensemble is nearly as impressive as the people they're portraying. But forget Matt Damon and Killian Murphy and whoever else. Groves assembled a truly colorful cast of characters. Physicists, chemists, and warriors. Colonel Boris Pash would command the mission. He had been born in San Francisco, but fought against the Bolsheviks in the Russian Revolution alongside his father, Russian Orthodox priest Teodorye Pashkovsky. You would think this would provide common ground, but George Kistiakowsky actually held an extremely low opinion of Pash. And he's not alone. Pash was a no-nonsense kind of guy with an attitude some found abrasive. Could be a trait he developed while teaching phys ed and science classes at Hollywood High School. Mo Berg was a famous Major League Baseball player, and one of the league's very few Jewish players to this day. He had already been an MLB catcher, and a very good one, for 15 seasons when the war broke out. After his rookie season, he chose to take classes at the Sorbonne in Paris, rather than work on his 186 batting average. But this was not terribly unusual for a man who fluently spoke at least half a dozen languages, could recite all of Edgar Allen's poetry, and graduated from Columbia Law School. Samuel Houtschmidt led the scientific half of the mission. He was a Dutch-American physicist teaching at the University of Michigan. And he was the sort of fellow who once learned how to read ancient Egyptian hieroglyphics accidentally. His real claim to fame, though, was the concept of electron spin, which he jointly proposed with a colleague. See the episode on neodymium for more on that concept. That work brought him together with Werner Heisenberg, likely the preeminent physicist in Germany at the time, who helped Hauptschmidt achieve the recognition he deserved. The two became good friends. Edwin Kemble was the mission's deputy science director. He was a graduate of and professor at Harvard University, and had actually introduced the first course in quantum theory to the school's physics curriculum. Eventually, he worked his way up to department chair. There were eventually about 40 field agents, all told. The outfit called themselves Alsos, which is the Greek word for groves. Sometimes they were called Lightning A. Together, they would dart between the front lines all over Europe crossing into enemy territory in a desperate attempt to learn more about the Nazi nuclear program. Uh, incidentally, Groves did not appreciate the group's little nominal wink and nod toward him. Uh, Codenames, as he put it, were supposed to be deliberately innocuous in order to avoid drawing undue attention to the Manhattan Project. At first, he wanted to change the name to anything else, but ultimately decided that would only draw more attention. So Alsos started in Algeria, soon moving to Italy, but made little progress. The Nazis had recently occupied Rome, and sadly we don't have time to get into the fascinating tale of the Italian resistance, uh, which includes the Sicilian Mafia's charity work, 
Catholic priests conducting radio surveillance, and an epidemic of a fake disease called Syndrome K. What is pertinent to our story today is that Germany's grip on the city was tighter than Alsace predicted. Uh, they learned a little about the German rocketry program, but not much about atomic weapons. That began to change, slowly, as they moved toward France. For instance, Alsace made huge gains in August 1944 when they tracked down Frédéric Joliot-Curie, husband of Nobel Prize-winning scientist Irène Joliot-Curie, and son-in-law to Nobel Prize-winning physicist Marie Curie. Uh, oh, he also won a Nobel Prize, I guess. Uh, at the time, he was the top of the team's most wanted list, suspected of being a Soviet sympathizer or maybe a Nazi collaborator. But when the Americans arrived, he was glad to see them and freely explained that he was staying in Paris to prevent the Nazis from acquiring his laboratory equipment and research. He assured Hauptschmidt, his interrogator, that Germany was not anywhere near producing atomic bombs, and he provided information on several German physicists who were part of the nuclear program. This was all good intel, and in truth, Joliot Curie was a highly active member of the French resistance. On the one hand, he leveraged an impressive bureaucratic apparatus to prevent French scientists from being deported to Germany. On the other hand, he and his comrades would occasionally sneak into police headquarters, pour some of the chief's nigh-limitless supply of champagne down the drain, and use the bottles for Molotov cocktails. He even invented an extra spicy variety using potassium chlorate and sulfuric acid. He did all this in the August heat, so reportedly he and his crew were shirtless and glistening with sweat while crafting these improvised weapons. Not sure who would play him in the Oppenheimer. Alsace spent the next several months creeping toward Germany, sometimes ahead of the advancing Allied forces and sometimes in their shadow. They'd occasionally find a prominent scientist holed up in his lab, uh, or uncover a modest cache of uranium ore. But they really hit the jackpot in April 1945. That's when Pash led a team that secured over 1,100 tons of uranium ore from a salt mine in the recently captured city of Stosford, a task that had to be carried out quickly and quietly, since the trove was technically within the zone allocated to the Soviet Union. Uh, remember how the Nazis acquired practically all of Belgium's plentiful uranium stock from Shinkalobwe? This was where they had stashed it, and apparently forgotten about it. In a memo to the U.S. Army Chief of Staff, Groves wrote, The capture of this material, which was the bulk of uranium supplies available in Europe, would seem to remove definitely any possibility of the Germans making any use of an atomic bomb in this war. As the threat of an Axis atomic bomb diminished, the Alsace mission shifted its focus to its secondary objective, seizing any files, materials, and personnel related to the now less threatening Nazi nuclear program. That would surely all be valuable in its own right, but more importantly, it would keep it out of the hands of the Soviets, and the French, and basically anyone else who might be interested. Of all those strategic resources, the most valuable was the aforementioned personnel. 
Not personnel files, we're talking about flesh-and-blood German scientists, whom the Alsace team collected like Pokemon. By the spring of 1945, they had taken into custody dozens of German scientists, including Karl von Weizsäcker, Max von Lau, Otto Hahn, and Walter Gerlach. The detainees' attitudes varied upon their capture. Uh, when an Alsace officer uh, entered Otto Hahn's private office, he solemnly looked up and said, in English, I have been expecting you. Karl von Weizsäcker was relieved to be captured by the Americans rather than the Soviets. Can't imagine why. But he became rather agitated when they raided his wine cellar. Werner Heisenberg remained frustratingly out of reach. The prior December, Mo Berg, the baseball player, posed as a researcher to attend a lecture Heisenberg gave in Zurich, with a Beretta in one pocket and a cyanide pill in the other. But when the lecture failed to indicate any special knowledge of atomic fission, and actually appeared to bore the other legitimate physicists in attendance, Berg decided not to employ the weapons at his disposal. Heisenberg had remained out of reach since then. The Americans knew that Heisenberg had moved his entire scientific operation to a small town on the edge of the Black Forest after Allied bombing rendered Berlin too unsafe. In April 1945, Lightning A approached the town, ready to apprehend the research and the researchers. What they found was a dead silent, dusty Bavarian village with a castle looming over tall, sheer limestone cliffs. In a natural cave beneath that castle were the abandoned remnants of Heisenberg's lab, a large aluminum cylinder with wires, pipes, and electrical cables sprawled in all directions. A message was scrawled on a chalkboard. Let rest be holy to mankind. Only crazy people are in a hurry. Compared to the sprawling behemoth that was the Manhattan Project, which employed hundreds of thousands of Americans working furiously around the clock, this scene struck Hauschmidt as kind of pathetic. He later wrote, Sometimes we wondered if our government had not spent more money on our intelligence mission than the Germans had spent on their whole project. Elsass captured a lot of scientists that day, but the big H was not one of them. The search would need to continue if they wanted to keep him out of Soviet hands. Or at least that was the official motivation. For Hauschmidt, the search for Heisenberg was also personal. Several years prior, he had confronted Heisenberg, betrayed that his former friend would devote himself to a fascist government that publicly mistreated him that he didn't even believe in. He had job offers in America. Why was he remaining loyal to a country that was collapsing beneath his feet. Heisenberg's principled answer was not at all uncertain. He needed to stay and fight, he said, defend German science and values. Germany needs me, he said. By the end of the war, one would be hard-pressed to name anything he had done to keep the nation on the right path. Alsace wouldn't capture Heisenberg for another couple weeks, but Hauschmidt did find and search his empty office later that day. It was inside an old mill and stripped clean of anything valuable, or at least anything strategically valuable. Prominently displayed on Heisenberg's desk 
was a framed photograph of himself alongside his old friend, Samuel Hauchmidt. If you are new to the episodic table of elements, we like to finish each episode by exploring some of the ways an interested person could add this particular piece of the universe to their collection of elements. This endeavor has admittedly started to get a little more difficult as we've approached the bottom of the periodic table, but I'm pleased to say that uranium is not even in the top 10 most difficult elements to acquire. It's actually kind of easy. Not as easy as it used to be, unfortunately. Uh, but if you're on the lookout and willing to spend a little money, you can collect a curiosity from an era that treated radioactivity a little more casually. Perhaps the best example of this is the Gilbert U-238 Atomic Energy Laboratory, a chemistry set that was sold in 1950. For just $50, the radiation-curious child could get their hands on a fairly sophisticated set of scientific instruments, uh, including a Geiger counter, a spintheroscope, and a cloud chamber. Element samples included zinc-65, lead-210, polonium-210, and, naturally, uranium-238. Most enticing of all, the kit included a comic called Learn How Dagwood Splits the Atom, written with the help of none other than General Leslie Groves. The sets only remained on the market for a year due to poor sales. Apparently, the ionizing radiation was not the main concern, but rather the price tag. In 2023 dollars, it would cost a little over 600 bucks. And it doesn't even play Jedi Survivor. It might be surprising to learn that uranium has been actively used as a weapon of war for several decades. Not for its fissile properties, but for its density. Around 70% more dense than lead, it's useful both as armor and as armor-piercing rounds of ammunition. Only depleted uranium is used in this way, which is uranium that could not be used to start any kind of nuclear fission. But it is still radioactive, not to mention one of the more toxic metals, so its use is not uncontroversial. An individual bullet is rather safe, so long as it's stationary, but when they litter a battlefield by the thousands, they may cause significant harm long after they've been fired. At any rate, you're not likely to have access to that materiel unless you are in the armed forces and in an especially armed and forceful situation. At least in the U.S., the Nuclear Reg Regulatory Commission has strong opinions about who gets to add those to their collection. But aside from military gear, the NRC, NRC excuse me, seems unconcerned with policing the kind of samples the element collector is likely to acquire which tend to fall under the categories of small or unimportant quantities of source material. Uh, these regulations have not been rigorously tested in the court of law, and for many reasons I am incapable of providing legal advice. But there are actually many accessible civilian sources of uranium, from antique glassware to modern-day scientific instruments. But to really make your collection stand out, you may want to get a small cube, of natural uranium metal. Not the kind that anyone could easily buy for about $1,000. I'm talking about some very specific uranium cubes. Remember that nuclear reactor the Nazis built in a cave beneath a Bavarian castle? I get to write some very fun sentences for this show. Not all of the pieces were there when Alsace found it. 
Conspicuously missing was the fuel. That reactor had a truly unique design. Metal cable cables dangled hundreds of small uranium cubes into a tank of heavy water, which acted as the moderator. The moderator wound up being somewhat superfluous. They never achieved the critical mass necessary to kick off a self-sustaining reaction. Weizsäcker and Hahn revealed the spot where they buried the cubes, and the Alsace team hastily loaded them into a truck and skipped town before the French noticed. A number of those two-inch cubes found their way into American pockets. Highly relatable. But today, almost all of those thousand-plus little blocks are completely lost. Many of them could have been enriched and used in the bombs dropped over Hiroshima and Nagasaki. That's what happened to the Belgian uranium. But they're not all lost. Over the years, a few have popped up. About a dozen of them. In the Smithsonian, on the banks of a German river, in the trunk of someone's car in a Maryland parking lot. It's just enough to suggest that dozens more might be scattered across the globe just waiting to be rediscovered. Miriam E. Hebert is a materials scientist and Smithsonian fellow who has spent years trying to do just that. When asked how the search is going, she said, We believe we have pieced together the most likely story of what happened to the cubes at the end of the war, but there was no huge discovery of lost crates of uranium, unfortunately. She actually has a book coming out in July, The Uranium Club, Unearthing the Lost Relics of the Nazi Nuclear Program which looks like the most comprehensive search for these blocks anyone has yet performed. So who knows, anyone listening to this episode might just happen to have one of these historical artifacts buried in a long-forgotten box in the dustiest corner of their closet, a tchotchke inherited from some great-uncle. I'd recommend walking around your house with a Geiger counter, but that kind of behavior does tend to make one's family worry. If somehow you do find one of these dark, blank cubes, it might feel strangely heavy, and not only because of its considerable mass. The little thing might have had a pretty interesting couple of decades since its collection 80 years ago by that motley crew of atomic spies. Prior to that, it would have passed through the hands of some of the most brilliant scientists in history, working for one of the cruelest regimes in history. And before all that, it had to be pulled from the earth. In rural Germany, occupied Congo, wherever, by a team of miners who might have given their lives, willingly or otherwise. Those of you who are hearing this episode live at Harvard's Department of Chemistry and Chemical Biology's Pfizer Hall are especially privileged, because one of the cubes was brought stateside by none other than Edwin Kemble, the Alsace officer who was also chair of Harvard's physics department. And he donated it to the school's science center, which occasionally lends it out for classroom demonstrations and where it remains to this day, I am told. So maybe you'll never add one of those historical artifacts to your collection, but it is a part of your collection. Maybe it's better for an object with such illustrious provenance to be available for mass enrichment. Thank you very much. Thanks for listening to the Episodic Table of Elements, and an enormous thank you to Sam, 
Daniel, Jane, and everyone who came out that afternoon. I got to spend such a wonderful day exploring the campus and chemistry labs, spending time with students and listeners, and learning about all the fascinating and impressive projects they're working on. It was such a privilege and a pleasure to get to perform this episode for this audience. Music is by Kai Engel. To see the joke from Kistiakowski's diary, the most ironic thing Heisenberg might have ever said, and much more about uranium, visit episodictable.com slash you. I'll also include more information about the episode release schedule there, but the short version is I'll still be releasing episodes on a slow schedule for the time being. When the next episode does come out, we'll sail the briny sea with Neptunium. Until then, this is T.R. Appleton reminding you to go see Oppenheimer July 21st, 2023, only in theaters. <laughs>